Um, we are going to delay getting back into Ephesians. Uh, we will get back to Ephesians in a, in a couple weeks, but we are going to, we did a few weeks after Advent um, in the Psalms, and now we're going to look at a brief five-part series here at the beginning of the year, and then we'll shift back to, to Ephesians. I, I've begun to make it a practice, or have sought to look for ways each and every year to begin with a focus on Jesus, very specifically and directly, that we would begin as a church and in January, the month of January, in February, looking specifically at the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the, the accomplishments of Jesus. And it, we, we want to look focused particularly on Jesus because while there are other, two other members of the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit, they both thrust Jesus forward um, as being the center of, of, of our life as Christians and so I want us to look this year at the beginning of this 2020 year at the very heart of Jesus is what we're going to be looking at for the coming weeks. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that, the heart of Jesus, in just a minute. But if I could tell, tell you personally the impetus with why I want to particularly look at the heart of Jesus for the next couple of weeks. I, um, in 2020, was finding my, in my own heart, um, and actually for quite a few years, I prayed through a fruit of the Spirit, and I found that I kept praying for gentleness. And I would go, I'd get to the end of the year and go, am I more gentle? And I'd go, it's not looking so good. And so I'd say, we're going we're gonna to pray about it again. And I'd pray it about again. And I'd pray it about again. And I found over the years that uh, what I have found coming, bubbling up from my heart and my soul about others was not what you call loving. I, it was not gentle. It was not kind. It was not, it was not loving. And I want to love better. I want to love my children better. I want to love my church better. I want to love people on social media better. I want to love people better. Isn't, wouldn't it be great? It would be easy to love if it wasn't for people, right? But out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And out of the heart, the, mouth, or the mind thinks. And out of the heart, the life is lived. And I want the overflow of my heart not to be how do I protect myself from people's expectations of me and self-preservation and to distance myself from those who are difficult and hard and those who are even good and easy to love. But I want to be warm. I want to be welcoming. I want to be long-suffering. And I want to be kind. And I want to be, well, an old English word, I want to be full of mirth. To smile easily with people and for people. And so last summer and into the fall, I read a couple books because I'm a nerd, and, and that's what I do. I mean, if you're, if that's, that's me. That's, some of you would be like, I just need to get out to the woods for a little bit. If I'm going to love people better, i got to get away from people. I, I go, I want to get away from people and read books uh, so that I can logo love people better. And I read two books, one particular, two, two books. One was called Love Walked Among Us by Paul Miller. He's a particular author who has been significantly shaped my, um, my prayer life over the years, and he wrote a book looking directly at Jesus and how Jesus specifically loved people well. And I'm um, calling us to love like Jesus. And the second was a book that has actually taken, uh, many people have begun to read this book in the last years, called Gentle and Lowly by a man named Dane Ortland, uh, a book that was, uh, became my favorite gift to give people in the last year. But in both these books was a particular look at how Jesus loves. Because we learn to love because he first loved us. And so if you want to grow in love, you look at how Jesus loves the second impetus is not just my failure to love, but also my, was my growing love and heart for you. It, it seems, maybe it's becoming, I'm, I'm, I am becoming more gentle, I hope. Maybe it's because we're just, 
we have a larger congregation, so there's more hurting people, and maybe that's, there's just a particular season, but I find I am consistently confronted by wounded people in our church who are struggling and laboring, and they feel it so deeply, and my longing for them is I, I don't know how to express it. In the room, I want to hug them. I want to communicate to them my love and affection for them, and I want them to know so desperately as they walk through a valley of the shadow of death, Jesus' heart and love for them. Because I believe the power to move through the difficulties of life is to know that Jesus and his loving affection is with you. Then we come to this week. And I also long for our church. I said this a couple weeks ago, that I worry about our church specifically, but also for the church at large in our country, that we are a church culture that is angry. We are culturally angry. We have taken on the culture around us, sarcasm, cynicism, and we are a self-preserving group of people. And by that, I'm speaking about Christians. What I have witnessed on social media by Christians this week in, in light of um, the issues that happened in Washington, D.C., issues being a kind of understated way of putting it, distresses me. I'm upset, <laughs> if I could put it bluntly and, and, and blatantly. Not so much because we have disagreements, but because we have forgotten or perhaps we've only romanticized for weddings words like love is patient and love is kind. It is not arrogant and it is not rude. It is not irritable. Love bears all things. Love does all things. It believes all things and it hopes all things. Passages like, in your anger, do not sin. There are things to be angry about this week. But are we sinning in our anger? And like a proverb that says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And yet, in John it says, we are known for our, they will, the world will know us by our love. And is that how we're known this week? In the midst of rioting, there was a sign that said, Jesus saves. It was ironic, wasn't it? Both by who is stating it, but also that it was both a message of goodness in the midst of something very dark, and yet was also something insidious in and of contend. I long for the church, our church. I can't contend for the whole church in America, but I can contend for ours. I want us to be known for our love and our affection. And I believe the best way and the way we speak matters. And so just as I want to love better, and I believe the best way for me to love better is to look to Jesus, I want us to love better corporately, and the best way for us to do that is to look to Jesus and to be amazed by his heart for us. And so that's what we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, hear God's word. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This ends the reading of God's word. Um, I have just two main points for you this morning as, we, as a means of ushering us into this five-week series, and I'm going to cram a lot under each of those points. What we see here from Jesus is a very clear and blatant invitation. Come. Come to me. 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. It's an invitation, and we're going to look more specifically at that invitation in, at, the, at the second part, part of this sermon. But what is the reason Jesus gives us for coming to him? He says, come to me, but why should we come to him? Why not somebody else? Why not somewhere else in the world? Why not other, some other religious leader? Why not some other description of God that we are given in the world? What is the reason that Jesus gives to answer his invitation and swiftly come to him? The answer, he says, the reason to respond to my invitation is because of my heart. Because of my heart. And so our first point, quite simply this morning, is the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus. You may have learned about the birth of Jesus last month, and the actions of Jesus, and the commands of Jesus, and the miracles of Jesus, and the nature of Jesus, and the divinity of Jesus, but have you ever learned about the heart of Jesus? Heart. It is important to understand what the Bible talks about when it says, talks about heart. We tend to think of it as someone's feelings and emotions, but I want to get that straight. When the Bible speaks about the heart, both in the Old and New Testament, it's not primarily speaking about our emotional life or the emotional life of God, but the heart of the Bible, it refers to the central animating center of all that we do. Here's a definition of the heart as I understand it from the scriptures. It should be on the screen for you. The heart is the seat of our core longings and desires, out of which flows everything else. Our feelings, our thoughts, our words, and our actions. It is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what we daydream about as we drift off to sleep. It is our motivation headquarters. The heart in biblical terms is, is not just who we are, but at the very center of who we are. It defines us and directs us. It drives all that we do, even when we don't know why, cognitively why we do what we do. The heart is what is going on the machine that is creating the life that we are living. And so when Jesus speaks of his heart, he is saying that what is at the center of who I am, the animating longing and desire of my life, that's my heart. And in the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we have 89 chapters of biblical text, and there is only one place right here where Jesus lifts up the curtain and says, I'm going to tell you what is the animating center of my heart? In my own words, in the one place where the Son of God pulls back the veil, he, he tells us who the core of who he is, and there we are told not that he is austere and demanding in heart, not that he is exalted and dignified in heart, and we're not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. At the very center of who he is, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly. Is this how you think of God? Gentle, it's the Greek word here, has an orbit of many words. We tend to think of, of translation or interpretation from another language into our language as being kind of like a one-to-one, -one kind of one equals one sort of thing. Like, donde esta el baño? Where? Donde? Esta is el baño, which of course stands for the el bathroom. Yes. One-to-one -one correlation. But most words, it actually, there's a, there's a range of words. And in the range of words for the Greek word for gentle, we have the words humble, meek, gentle. 
There is an intentional use in this word of power being through his touch. Words, demeanor that are being not restrained, but all that Jesus is and all that his character in, in, in nature is directed in an approachable and humble way to communicate his love and intimacy with us. That's what's connected or communicated in this word gentle, which means Jesus is not trigger happy. He is not easily exasperated or quickly angry. He is not irritable. He is not rough or harsh. He is not standing there looking at you with clenched teeth. He is not ready to snap and explode. He is not looking for gotcha moments. And he doesn't look like the kid in my exact favorite meme. There's, you know the meme? It's probably my most sent gif or gif or however it is. We can have a debate about that. Of the kid who's kind of really nerdy looking and he's looking at you with pursed lips like this. That it, what I realized... That is my most naturally desired thing to send people. And I go, crud, that is the posture of my heart. Look at these idiots. But that is not the heart of Jesus. He is not hurried. He is not pushy. He is not insensitive. The sound of his head is not the sound of final jeopardy. And his fingers are not tapping and his lips pursed in irritation. He is instead the most understanding person in the universe. He is careful. He is tender, he is compassionate, he is kind. His most natural disposition is not fingers pointed or arms crossed, but arms open in welcome invitation, which means this, that the physical posture of Jesus on the cross is emblematic of the disposition of his soul. Arms wide open. Lowly, lowly. It's similar to the word gentle. They have an overlapping if there's a Venn diagram of their understanding. But it is elsewhere translated as humble as well. But not so much just as the virtue of humility, but as someone who literally takes the place of a low estate. Like someone who would get down and wash feet. Or live with homeless people. Or clean tables. Like someone who would go to live with the lepers and the lonely. This is someone who is a state in status, socially, and they choose to take it on, is one of lowliness. Lowly in his heart means he is not arrogant, he is not overbearing, he is not prideful, he is not pretentious, he never big boys us with his social importance or disregards us because of his position. Lowly instead means he is others-oriented. He connects himself with the lowly, with the unimpressive. He connects himself and lives with the kind of people that we invite into our homes for Super Bowl parties, but not because we want to, but because we know we ought to. Quite frankly, if you were to see him, you would pity him because of his social standing. And in fact, that's what Isaiah says that the Savior will be like. Isaiah 53 says this, For he grew up, speaking of Jesus, he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And he chose to take on that posture. Why? Because his heart is lowly. In other words, what it means is this. No matter how small and insignificant you are, he is approachable to you. You can move towards him. Meaning there is nothing about his heart which should intimidate you from staying away from him. This doesn't mean, this means you don't work your way up to him. It actually means you fall down into him. This means you don't have to go up, go through security to get to him. You don't have to live up to some bar. You don't have to get in line. You don't have to present a resume. No, you, you find yourself in a place of loneliness today. Guess what? That's often where you find Jesus because that is where he has taken up his home. 
in the place of lowliness. And understand, understand this, though. For those of you that maybe are resistant because you know the Bible, this doesn't mean that Jesus is not also powerful. Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, the, the exact previous verse to verse 28. All things have been handed over to me, he says, by my Father. What is he saying? This verse shows that Jesus, he says, I know who I am. I'm the supreme ruler of the universe. All things are being, are being given to me. That's who he is, and yet he is gentle. He is powerful is what he is saying there. He is ruler and authority over all things, but power is rarely approachable in our minds, is it? I mean, we don't look at a lightning bolt and go, you know what, that is a warm and cozy lightning bolt. We don't make stuffed lightning bolts for our kids to sleep with in their bed, do we? And yet this is kind of how the Bible describes Jesus. He is the most powerful being of the universe, and yet at his heart he is gentle. And he's tender. Revelation 1, we find that Jesus is the one whose eyes are aflame and out of whose mouth two-edged sword comes out and his face is like a shining sun and there are tattoos on his thigh. Now, I've never considered tattoos on my thigh, but if I did, my, tattoos, my thighs better look really daggum good. <laughs> if I'm going to draw attention to that, and they better look really strong, which means he is mighty and he is powerful. And yet, Jesus deeply in his own heart, by his own claim, in his own words says... That one who will have a two-edged sword come out of his mouth is lowly in heart. B.B. Warfield, in case you need an old crunchy guy, theologian, to convince you of this, and, you know, that Andrew, he is not a, a hard-nosed enough theologian. We need to hear it from, like, one of those guys who's been in the theological battles. Here's what B.B. Warfield, he was the pre, uh, a professor at Princeton who went through and fought liberalism his whole life said this, no impression was left by the life of Jesus' manifestation more deeply printed upon the consciousness of his followers than the nobility of his humility. If the heart of Jesus is tender and lowly, understand this, that this means that the very heart of your God is gentle and lowly. There is no divide between God the Father and God the Son in their character and essence. In fact, he says it again in verse 27. All things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, Jesus' heart reveals the Father's heart. If you know Jesus in his heart, then you know the Father's heart for you. There is not a, there's not something, and this puts to bed any thought about an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. In fact, if we were to look back to the Old Testament God and the clearest description of him in the Old Testament, what we would find there is something quite astonishing. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses up on the mount, just as God has given him those Ten Commandments, and he's lofty, and there's fire, and there is smoke, Moses says, I want to see your glory. And so God says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, Moses. He says, I'm going to pass by you, and then I'm going to complain, com- proclaim to you my name. I'm going to show you who I am, Moses. And so in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And you would say, okay, I'm going to show you my glory, God. And so suddenly you would expect God to talk about his power and his greatness and his immenseness and his sovereignty. And indeed, Moses must feel that by the shaking and the earthquake of the mountain. But what is God's leading descriptor of himself? For I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. What you hear here there is the heart of God, the Father, and you also hear his power, yes, and his wrath, 
We're not negating that. But what comes first? What is number one? Number one description of who I am, I am merciful. I long to be gracious. I long to pour out my kindness. I long to display to you my patience and my long-suffering. I am abounding with love. I have a surplus of it. And Jesus is saying, I am here to reveal that God. I am the exact representation of that God. I share the essence of the Father's nature and character and his very heart. And so do you see who the the heart of Jesus is for here? You might find some resemblance. What's it say? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. The heart of Jesus is for weary laborers. Life is hard, isn't it? That means this is for those who are exhausted, those who have worked themselves to the point of exhaustion in this life. They are tired of life. The daily ground has, wouldn't you know, ground them up. The harsh realities of life has left them bruised and broken, and they are tired of living in a world with viruses and division and hatred and death. They are tired. And then they're heavy laden. What this refers to are not just simply... Those who are weary, those who are working hard to make ends meet in this world, but then the heavy laden refers to those who are living under a weight of guilt even as they do so. Who even as they work really, really hard, all they can think about are the the got-tos that they haven't gotten to. The got-tos that they haven't gotten to, all the ways that they failed. His heart is for the man and woman in this place who are burning the candle on both ends to make ends meet, who are trying to keep food on the table, to keep their job, to keep their kids out the door, to make food, to get the laundry done, to have to do it all over again. And then on top of that is the sense every single day is I have not measured up after all of that. And I got to get special time with the kid to address that character issue. And I got to ha- lead my family better. And I got to be, create a budget. And I got to lose some weight. And I got to make a kneel for my neighbors who are sick. And I got to join a community group. And I got to, and I got to, and I got to, I got to. And then you show up to church and the pastor looks at you and he said, you got to. And you go, I'm out. I'm out. Or perhaps when the very person you voted for, everybody else in the world gets up and screams and goes, you stink. How, you are such a morally repugnant person for voting for him. How dare you? And you go, you know what? I can't stand one more person telling me how much I stink at life. I'm angry. I'm mad. Or maybe you're scared. All of my effort, I have done everything I possibly can, and it does not seem to be measuring up. Is that you? And the heart of Jesus to you is, come to me. Come to me. So the second thing I want us to look at is simply the invitation of Jesus. Because out of his very heart, it's out of this gentle and lowly heart, pours his plea to come to him. His invitation. His heart goes out to the weary and the heavy laden. His heart pursues and it beckons and it reaches out. Come to me. Come to me. Just, would you just come to me, he says. Not try harder, not do better, not do more, not do this, not do that, not no, just come to me and I will give you rest. In me you'll find truth, he says. In me you'll find forgiveness. You'll have your sins washed. You'll have my righteousness given to you. And I'm not telling you to be more. I have done it all for you already. Are you soul tired? Not just physically tired, not I can't measure up in life, but also, man, from the core of my being, I don't measure up. There's something deeply wrong with me. I'm both guilty and I am ashamed. I am heart tired. Do you feel your Christian life is like running up a descending escalator? 
Is joy something you're having to muster up? Jesus says, I'm not going to add to your to-do list, but I'm going to quiet you, and I'm going to lead you with my gentle and lowly heart into a place of green pastures and quiet waters. I'm going to provide you an identity and a forgiveness and a significance and a security and adoption, and I'm going to do it all, as we sang earlier, not on you coming to buy, but on my dime, my dime. That's the invitation. So come to me. So here's the question here. How do we as Christians... Exhausted, come to Jesus. I feel hypocritical saying it, but I'm going to try to put it in such simple terms that it's going to sound like I'm giving you some to-do lists with just when I don't want you to necessarily have a bunch of to-do lists. But I'm going to say it's as easy as A, B, C. Here's A. Admit. Admit you are weary and heavy burdened. Dane Orland, the one who wrote the book, Gentle and Lowly, says you don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. Come to me, all. That includes everybody. Now here's the, the section of who needs to come to Jesus. Those who are weary and heavy burdened. So come. And this is important. Jesus says the only requirement you need to come to me is that you need to acknowledge and admit that you are weary and that you're heavy burdened. We sang that. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. And you come as you are, right? You don't have to get dressed up, cleaned up, sobered up, straightened up. You come as you are. This is a Jesus who is gentle and lowly. And so if you come in like pig pen from peanuts into the house, he says, I will wash you and bathe you gently. You see, Jesus doesn't see us when we come in our nastiness and our brokenness and all the filth in our life and say, you get out, you are not pretty and equipped enough. No, you know, in my own kind of therapeutic way in trying to clean up my social media page so that I'm not just moving just from anger to deeper anger, as I've tried to add some comedy and, and humor. And so last two weeks ago, I added every single Calvin and Hobbes and Farside comic strip on Instagram I could absolutely find. So now my Instagram feed is just funny, 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 political comment, makes me really angry. Then I'm funny, funny, funny. It's a, quite the emotional up and down, but most of it's funny now. And I saw this far side illustration the other day. They go, the guy, there's a UFO that comes down and the guy yells out to the aliens, take me. And the alien responds, no, you're ugly. <laughs> What's great is Jesus never responds to us that way. Take me, please. He never says, no, you know, could you go get... You're kind of gross. Could you get, I mean, even just a little bit cleaned up, then come to me? It, that means it's not get clean, then come. It's not make some of yourself of your life, then come. No, it is admitting I am not clean, so I must come. I'm not clean, so I need Jesus. I don't have what it takes, so I must go to the God who is lowly and places himself in the world's social class who don't have what it takes. That's my social class. I don't have what it takes. Now, admitting that we are a tired people, admitting that we don't have the strength to bear the burdens of all of life's demands, the difficulty is in the admitting, because caught up in the admitting is that you don't just simply admit that I'm, oh, I'm tired, I'm tired, but you admit that all of your attempts to gut it, gut it out and get it right and to correct your weariness have only made things worse. You see, the natural answer of the human heart is played out in poetic and profound ways in all the world's religions, which is you're tired and you feel burdened and life isn't working for you, try harder, is essentially what they say. 
The religious leaders of Jesus' day talk about carrying the yoke of the law is what they talked about. That's where Jesus gets the image of the yoke. You're to take the yoke of the Torah upon yourself, by which they meant keep the law and you will feel better about yourself. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, speaking of the Pharisees, says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders. Their answer was, you stink, try harder. Religion will crush you under its weight. Work to make yourself worthy is a recipe for death. In fact, that's the very perspective. You understand the world's religions and what they were trying to give the people in Jesus' day and what so many, so many people continue to give people today as the answer and recipe to their life is the same answer that Nazis want Jews to have as they enter concentration camps. You know what the sign said over Auschwitz? said this, Arbeit macht frei, which meant work shall set you free. Oddly enough, they were telling the truth, weren't they? You were there to work yourself to the freedom of death. And that is the religion of so many of us. I'm not doing well. Do, do better. That's our answer. And Jesus says, come to me all who are fatigued by trying to be good enough to earn God's love. And he says, set that aside. There's an old hymn. There's an old hymn. It's too difficult to sing, but here's the line. The last line of this hymn says this, cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet, stand and stand in him complete. Now, when you cast it down, you'd better have a good reason. This is B. A is admit, B is believe. Believe in Jesus' weary work of burden bearing. Believe in Jesus' weary work of burden bearing. Jesus got tired a lot. Jesus offers to ease our yoke, to lift our burden, to give us rest, to set us free. Jesus portrayed in the New Testament as the supreme burden bearer of our sins and our guilt. He bore our burden when he died on the cross. This is who he was. Isaiah 53, 6 says, And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In other words, that's the burden of guilt. Sheep, you stink. You, you haven't done what's right. And Jesus says, And the Lord has laid on him burden, the iniquity of us all. Laid on him is using the language of being burdened. A heavy yoke has been placed on Jesus. It's called your sin. First John 1.29, the next day, John the Baptist says, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's yours and it's mine. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ, having been offered up once to what? Bear the sins of many. Bear the sins. In 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his very body. That means he felt the exhaustion and the weight of your shame and guilt in his very being physically. He took our nature. He took our sins. He took our wrath. That was his yoke. He bore your curse and my curse. Our burden can be lifted because he took it to the cross and he did away with it. He pushed it away. You grew up in the church, maybe you read the book Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is about it. It's an allegorical story about a man named Christian, so he wasn't trying to hide the allegory very closely, who begins a journey because he has heard of a better city, the better king in a faraway land, and he labors and struggles, though, as he is on this journey to get to the city because on his back is an enormous burden. And I remember as a child, we had the illustrated version, which was rather old and weird and creepy looking, but he had this, he had this enormous rock is the, on the front cover of the book, this huge rock kind of in this bag, and it was strapped all over his chest and all over his, all over his stomach, and he, he stooped down under the weight of this enormous burden. 
And the pilgrim found that this burden not only slowed his progress, but it nearly killed him time after time. And then suddenly in his journey, he comes to a, a place, an ascending place, a hill. And upon that place stood a cross. And at the bottom of that hill, there appeared to be a tomb, a, a burial place. And, and this man, Christian, stumbles up the hill to see this cross. And just as he arrives at the cross, lo and behold, what happens is those, those tassels around him suddenly loose that he could not, those knots that he could not get undone. And that burden falls from his shoulders and off his back, and it rolled down the hill and rolls right down into the tomb. And he says, I saw my burden no more. And Christian with great joy said, he has given me rest by his sorrow on the cross. He has given me life by his death. You want to lay your burden down? The sense of the I gotas, and I'm not measuring up in all of my efforts. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm failing at life, and not only that, but I'm guilty. The Christian said he stood... You lay that burden at the cross of Jesus. And the Christian said he stood for a while at the cross amazed at this thing, that this place of death, this place of death somehow could ease his burden, and he wept. B, believe, trust in the love and forgiveness of Jesus and rest in his love, rest in the fact that he has borne your burden. And lastly, C, commit, commit to Jesus' yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my burden is light. A yoke was a frame of wood. Kind of has two arches to it. It's to bind two oxen together so that they would work together to plow a field. And when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, this is a picture of submission. Of placing yourself under his yoke. Yoke is a picture of the whole Jewish rabbis would call their teaching their yoke. My teaching, my instruction to you is my yoke. You're saying, I will yield to your yoke, to your teaching, and to your direction, Jesus. I will go where you direct me. I will live my life as you say. And understand this, you are submitting to him. It is not forced upon you, but if you want your burden relieved, you also must take on the burden that he gives. Jesus says, submit to me and learn to me. But also, you don't yoke an animal simply just to teach it, do you? You yoke an animal to work it. Submitting to Jesus' yoke is not submitting simply to his teaching, but also it's to submit to his call to labor with him in this world on mission. Meaning his yoke directs you to live in a particular field to do, yes, work in this world. It will feel like work. The yoke of Jesus is to bear burdens with Jesus as a co-laborer with him in this world. Jesus says, I want you to labor with me. And he wants us to experience and to know what it's like so that, of his love so that we might display it to others. You see, your life will be shaped and directed by something. Is it being directed by your own heart and how the world says you're to live? Or is it being directed by one whose heart is gentle and lowly and kind? And he says, learn from me so that you might be gentle and lowly and kind and patient and hopeful and 1 Corinthians 13 stuff. Because you learn it from him? Well, here's the question you might be having right now. Okay, hold on. Okay, I, I came in. You made me feel really good. You got rid of the labor stuff. But now you're saying Jesus is going to give me his own yoke? Are you saying, isn't this labor and yoking just going to make me feel even more burdened and tired again? Are you telling me that if I feel tired about life, I should volunteer in the kids' ministry? The answer is yes. And is, are you, is that what you're saying? Isn't that, isn't that learning and laboring just going to leave me even more burdened? Jesus says, no, my yoke is light. Like, listen, anything somebody puts on a cow, 
or an oxen, that's not light. Jesus, how is your burden light? Plus, he says, it's Jesus' burden. I look at Jesus' life, that doesn't look easy. You want, me, you, want to, you want me to live with the love of Jesus? That looks hard. Here's why Jesus' burden is light. Three reasons. His burden is light because his burden is a kindness. The Greek word for easy in the phrase, my yoke is easy, is the same word used to translate kindness. He's saying my yoke is a kindness. But there is something about this yoke, in other words, that is well-fitting for who we are. 1 John 5, 3 actually says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, most of us have experienced his commandments as burdensome. Therefore, God must have a different view of his commandments than you and I do. You see, in other words, what I'm saying is this that we have looked at God's law and God's calling in our life as a burden and a yoke upon us that is going to bear and crush us down, but then there must be something wrong with it, the way we view his, his commandments. Jesus says, I give you my commandments because it will set you free. To live life as I designed you to live life. You break down when you violate my law of love. In other words, his commandments are like the wing on a bird. You ever seen a bird complain about his wings? Well, of course not. I know, it's an idiotic illustration. But no, like, but we, no, birds don't complain about their wings. Have you ever seen a bird saying, you know what, I could fly a lot faster if I didn't have these things just kind of flapping on my side. You know, wings weigh something. Jesus, why'd you give me these wings? I would be able to fly faster and better and in smaller spaces. I'd go really, really fast if you just didn't give me these wings. Why this burden? But that's actually how God views the law. The law are the wings how you're to live your life in freedom. Without his wings, the bird cannot fly. The burdens, the wings are a burden of sorts. They weigh something, but the wings are there to make him soar. And so it is for is God's law of love. Which means this, God, your views on sexuality, they're a little bit stifling. Yeah, but how is your views on sexuality working for you? You see, God has actually designed his law and his call upon our life in such a way that when we live into it, we create a world that is more free and more loving and more joyous and more life-giving to those around us and to us. It means you allow the heart of Jesus to shape your heart. Second, his burden is light because you're yoked to the spirit of Jesus. They would pull a, a yoke with what? Just you? Just one oxen? No, two oxen. And you're yoked to the spirit of Jesus. First John says his commandments are not burdensome, and they are not burdensome because you're hooked up to Jesus himself. He is yoked with you to help you and strengthen you and support you. In other words, the image of you being yoked to, the, to Jesus is you're this little bitty weak oxen. And then there's Jesus. And he's churning along, and there, you're there, and you can't even get your feet to touch the ground. Which means what? He's doing all the work. And he's dragging you along with him. That's the image here. He is yoked with you to help you and strengthen you and support you. When Jesus commands you to do something and calls you into his mission, he says, I'm never going to ask you to do something in which I will not go with you and I will not strengthen you for it. And third, his burden is light because we live under the very heart of Jesus. So much of the reason why you feel burdened by life's expectations is because the taskmasters in your life are so harsh. For me, if you're like me, that taskmaster lives inside of me. For others, it's your parents. Some image that the world has given you of what success looks like. And the world's taskmasters are so unforgiving. They're mean-spirited in their demands. 
And this is how you've actually begun to view Jesus and God the Father. You've, you've projected his view of you his, as a master over you like the world's masters. And yet here's where the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, so again, another kind of a crunchy, old, dead, white dude. They're known for their sour dispositions. But here's what he says. Thomas Goodwin writes this in the 18th century. He tells them, his, Jesus tells, writing of Matthew 11, Jesus tells them his disposition there by preventing that we would have hard thoughts of him to allure them into something more. We are apt to think that he, Jesus, being so holy, is therefore severe and sour in disposition and is not able to bear us up. No, he says. Jesus says, I am meek, and my gentleness is my nature and my temper, which means this, his yoke is light because when he looks at you and he sees how you're doing, his longing is to say, well done, my good and faithful. Just kicking up dirt. You're there with your legs flapping in the wind, just kicking up dirt every once in a while, and he said, man, it's so good, so good. The world is full of harsh taskmasters, but Jesus is tender and gentle and compassionate and patient and kind. And you know what? One of the ways in which we see the, 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 the gentleness of this taskmaster is from the very, he put it in the very nature of the way the world is supposed to work, the very rhythms of his people. He said, one day in seven, you are to rest. You know, the idea of a day off, that did not exist outside of Jewish society. And it didn't, it didn't really exist until Western civilization taking on the ethic of the scriptures brought it into the cultural life. You see, even in this life where we're exhausted and weary and worn, our master, who puts his yoke on us, says, hey, why don't you take one in seven and rest? And not only that, but when you take that one in seven, I'm going to call you in. I'm going to say, hey, come and rest and remember what I've done for you. Just come and eat at my table and reflect on how strong I am and how I have taken your burden and how I have given you my righteousness so that there is no burden on your, take it off, put it in the closet. Don't, you know, we, we put things in closets so we never have to see them anymore. Put it in the closet. It's the far as the east is from his west. It's a meal that reminds us of his lowliness, that he was crushed under the burden that we sought to bear so that we may rise week in and week out knowing that we are free. Free. And so let's go to the table. Would you come with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you're a God who is gentle and kind. We praise you that you have given yourself to us. We praise you that you would say in such clear and profound and beautiful language of your very heart for us. And so, Lord, as we come to this table and we, we um, take of this bread and we drink this juice, would your spirit, just as your spirit goes out in the word, would your spirit even go out through the weakness of a wafer and juice? These simple things these worldly things, and yet you say you're there. Would you come and give us your grace? Strengthen us for weary people who are in this room. We pray this in Jesus' name.